listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everybody. It is nice to hear good news, and uh, if you're a guest today, uh, here's some good news. Uh, you're in a safe place uh, to hear a dangerous message. Uh, I don't know if it'll be this message, <laughs> but uh, the message that we want to convey to you as a church is that you matter. You matter to God. Uh, you should matter to us. Uh, and you matter to this world. You have a place in this world. And so today we welcome you if you are a guest. And if you're a regular today, um, you'll know that this is the final week of the series, as Mikkel pointed out. Uh, we've been in a good news series built around the gospel of Mark. And today we arrive at the final week. And I told you from the beginning, way, way back when we started this in September, that we live in kind of a bad news world now. And in fact, I was going to go back and list for you all the bad news that we had heard reported in the media since we started this series but candidly, I got so discouraged and depressed that I just deleted it. <laughs> um, it was really good to hear the good news, especially the good news from our community. But to be honest with you, it got me to thinking. Most of us in this series, we've been talking about receiving good news or hearing good news from Jesus and the gospel. But today, I want to kind of partner up with what Robbie did last week and suggest to you that what our world needs more than anything is not for us as Christ followers to just keep hearing the good news of the gospel or to keep possibly receiving good news. On the contrary, I think it is imperative that we become good news for other people. That we become good news in an otherwise bad news world. Now, to help us understand how incredibly important this is, we're going to look today at Mark chapter 12 and one last conversation that Jesus had with the spiritual leaders in his day. It is found in Mark chapter 12, and it's a very familiar passage. Many of you who are Christ followers and have followed Jesus will remember it. It says this, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no one but, uh, other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt sacrifices and offerings. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him, talking about Jesus, any more questions. Now, this seems like a pretty simple exchange when Jesus tells the teachers of the law that the greatest commandment is to love God 
and to love their neighbor as themselves. Really, no one would have been blown away by this answer because this is what the Torah taught. Jesus had hit the bullseye. What did cause people problems is figuring out exactly what does it mean, Jesus, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And especially, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? In fact, in another gospel account, when this question is brought up and this story is uh, conveyed, the question is raised by one of the leaders, who then, Jesus, is my neighbor? You see, people in our, prob- in our day and in their day had a real compelling problem. As human beings, we like to have a formula or a process or a strategy or a step-by-step guide, at least a compelling vision that will define to us what does it mean to love God completely? What's the best way to do that? For us, we like hoops. Jump through this hoop, practice this certain practice, go through this certain ritual, perform this certain ceremony. And our main concern is what can I do to make sure that I'm loving God and that he knows that I love him. And Christians have been trying for centuries to come up with compelling answers to this question. And it's sad to say this, but I want to tell you what I think today's culture The primary way that today's culture, today's church, has decided to let God know that we love him. In fact, let me express it this way. There's a phrase that you will never hear in the Bible. The phrase, where do you go to church, is not in the Bible. This is very interesting. There's an important reason for the fact, I think, that it doesn't mention that. Now, I'm not advocating that you stop going to church, okay? We have enough people here already at this church who kind of just attend like once every, you know, whenever, okay? I'm not harping on church attendance today, so don't worry about that. I'm not advocating that you stop going to church. But in the time when the New Testament books were written, nobody thought about calling a building a church, They didn't even have buildings for church people to gather at. You know what all they had? It's people. The people were the church. And this strange thing happened over centuries. What used to be the name of the people became the name of a building. And sometimes in our day, people will look at a building where people go to church and gather and they'll say, you have a beautiful church. To early Christians, that would be nonsense. (laughs) To early Christians, for somebody to say something like that would be like someone in our day looking at a crib and saying, you have a beautiful baby. No. A baby is a people. (laughs) A crib is a thing. A crib is a place. It's a place where you put a baby. In fact, you don't even put the baby there all the time. You just put the baby there so uh, he or she can rest up and so you can rest up. Maybe feed them, let them take a nap, recharge, get back into the world. Because listen, the world is where the action is. The baby loves being in the world just like you do. In fact, if you have a baby, you wouldn't want them in the crib 24-7. Unless you're an exhausted new mom. And then you have every right to. (laughs) The crib is not what the baby was made for. 
Here's another thing you're never going to read in the Bible. You're never going to read a phrase where it says, how was church today? People ask that question all the time, especially on Sundays. How was church today? Now what that means to them usually is this. How did a particular service go? How did that particular hour and 15 minutes play out? Like, how was the music today? Like, did they play my favorite worship song today? Was it the right kind of music? Like, how did the sermon go? Was it too short or was it too long? Did Phil speak today or did Robbie speak today? Or did they have somebody who we didn't even know their name? <laughs> By the way, how's the sermon going so far? We're still together? Okay, good. Somewhere along the way, we got off track with this. We measure church, listen now, we measure church by how was that one little group of people on that one little platform in that one little building doing during that one little hour of the week. And we get jacked up by this. Somehow we have reduced the good news of the gospel to showing God how much we love him through one hour, one hour of religious participation at a specific place and time. And the tendency to compartmentalize and to restrict the church to a particular place and a particular time is not the first time it's happened. It crops up over and over again. And I'll just say this, God doesn't like it very much. That was not the idea God had behind church. In fact, I think the best two questions to ask today would be this. Where does God think the church is? And how does God think church went today? Let's think about this for a second. If the church really was God's idea then there's probably something there that kind of reminds us of what the church really should be. Actually, there's a passage in the Bible, and it's kind of a strange thing here, but it actually comes from the Old Testament. And it talks very directly to the people of God about their assemblies and about their getting together. It's kind of a critical passage, I'll be honest. It's a little challenging. But we're just going to read it, and I'm going to read it from the Message Bible, just so it won't sting too much that some of you will be turned off and just never listen to the rest of the message. It's from a prophet named Isaiah, and God gave this prophet Isaiah a message to take back to his people. Here's what he says. Tell my people what's wrong with their lives. Face my family Jacob with their sins. They're busy, busy, busy at worship and love studying all about me. To all appearances, they're a nation of right-living people, law-abiding, God-honoring. They ask me, what's the right thing to do? And they love having me on their side. But they also complain. Why do we fast and you don't look our way? Why do we humble ourselves and you don't even notice? Well, here's why. The bottom line on your fast days is profit. You drive your employees much too hard. You fast, but at the same time, you bicker and fight. You fast, but you swing a mean fist. Do you call that fasting? A fast uh, day that I, God, would like? This is the kind of fast day I'm after. Listen now. To break the chains of injustice. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. 
If you are generous with the hungry and start giving yourselves to the down and out, your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. I will always show you where to go. I'll give you a full life in the emptiest of places. Firm muscles, strong bones. You'll be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. You'll use the old rubble of past lives to build a new, rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything, restore old ruins, rebuild and re renovate, make the community livable again. Now this section of Isaiah 58 is not one of the greatest chapters in Isaiah. It's not just one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. It may be one of the greatest, greatest chapters in all of human literature. The problem was the people thought they would measure how the people of God were doing by stuff like this. Well, I fasted a long time today, and I went to the assembly, and I had these deep real experiences, and I learned a lot, and I felt a lot, and I was deeply moved, and I sang a lot of psalms. In other words, they measured, what did we receive during this one little hour when we're here? And God says, no. Has nothing to do with that. That's not the best way to love me. The best way to love me is let's talk about what happened during the rest of your week when you were out there. Now don't get me wrong. Gathering together as a community is a really good and important thing. I'll be honest with you. Your, your growth as a Christ follower will be stunted if you just make periodic attendance and participation in the body of Christ just kind of a casual thing. I hope you will make a deep commitment to be here on a regular basis, be in community, be in a life group, be with people that love you and you love them. But here's what's critical. This is so critical. We do not gather for our sake. We simply come to the crib and we rest up and recharge and get nourished so that we can go back out into the real world. We talk around here about an up, an in, and an out vision. We talk about our relationship with God and Jesus as being transformative. And then we talk about inward, our relationships with each other to be authentic and to be connected. And then we talk about the out, and that is to go into the world, to Lakeland and our daily lives and beyond. What we want to do is we want to see life flourishing. Over in Israel, there's a place some of you have been to personally. Some of you have seen it or heard it, read about it. It's a place called the Sea of Galilee. It's a very beautiful life-giving lake. And the Jordan River flows down from the Sea of Galilee into something that is called the Dead Sea. Does anyone here want to guess why they call it the Dead Sea? It's not a trick question. It's dead. <laughs> There's nothing. Fish do not live in it. Do you know what killed the Dead Sea? Stinginess. It's always taking in, but it literally is never giving out. It's kind of like a reservoir of just holding water, but nowhere to release it to. Now listen, that is not what God had in mind for his church. It's not something you go to. One of my favorite restaurants to visit 
I haven't been there in a long time, but it's located in the city of Chicago. And it really has nothing to do with the food. It's a little restaurant called Ed DeBevick's. It's a super little fun, kind of like a diner style restaurant. And the attitude of the restaurant kind of mirrors the community of Chicago. The waiters and waitresses are deliberately and hilariously sarcastic. They complain about the customers the whole time. <laughs> the first time someone took me there was about 20 years ago, and they didn't tell me what was going to happen. I had no clue. The waitress came out to our table to take a drink order, and I told her I just wanted a glass of water. And she pointed out the window and she said, there's Lake Michigan, buddy, get it yourself. <laughs> and turned around and walked away. I said, what kind of place have you brought me to, Benny? But if you look at the wall of Ed DeBevick's, there is a slogan that is posted everywhere in their restaurant. It's unforgettable. Here it is. Ready? Eat and get out. <laughs> you know where this is going, right? I want to say it gently, and I want to say it the right way. I am so grateful we get to come together every week. I'm grateful we have places all over America that we can do that. I love the fact that we can come together and be fed God's word and be inspired by worship and pray together and be nourished together and love together and hear stories where we are encouraged together. But I want to tell you, we do not exist to create a safe little cocoon where we escape from this world of hurt, pain, and risk. Our place is in the world. So here's our message as a church. You've heard us say it a hundred times. Everybody is welcome. Nobody is perfect. Anything is possible. And now we'll say, eat and get out. There is a very valid and I think pretty sound theology to back up the belief that the primary way that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the primary way that you do that is when you love your neighbor as yourself. If you look at the good news of the gospel, I think Jesus points this out pretty clearly. He did it until he was blue in the face. You say you love God? He says take in the children. You say you love God? He says care for the poor. You say you love God? Then start eating with sinners. You say you love God? Forgive your enemies. You say you love God? Embrace the refugee. You say you love God? Then love your neighbor. But far too often what happens as Christ followers is we proclaim our faith in ways that alienates people's hearts. And we fail to proclaim the good news in ways that will melt people's hearts. I read this online. I'm sure it's not true. A guy was being tailgated by a stressed out, very angry woman on a busy street. And suddenly the light turned yellow right in front of him. And he did the right thing. He stopped at the crosswalk, even though he could have barreled right through the intersection. And the tailgating woman behind him had to slam on the brakes and she just lost it. She blew her horn. She was screaming in frustration. She had missed her chance to go through the light. And as she was still in the middle of her rant, she heard a tap on the window and looked up at the face of a very serious police officer. The officer told her to get out of the car with her hands up. 
He actually took her to the police station. She was searched, fingerprinted, photographed, actually placed in a jail cell. And after a few hours, a policeman approached the cell, opened the door. She was escorted back to the booking area. And the arresting officer was waiting for her. He said, here's your personal effects, ma'am. I'm very sorry for this mistake. He said, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn. You were flipping the guy off in front of you and cussing a blue streak at him. And then I noticed the Choose Life license plate holder on the back of your car. And I noticed the What Would Jesus Do bumper sticker on your car. And I saw the Follow Me to Sunday School bumper sticker on your car. And the chrome-plated Christian fish emblem on your trunk. And naturally, I assumed you had stolen the car. <laughs> See, it doesn't help to have all that stuff if you drive like the devil. It doesn't help to have Jesus on your bumper sticker if he's not behind the wheel of your life. And I'll tell you a secret. It's probably not a secret, but I'll say it anyway. Where we live at in America, we're not going to win the world for Jesus with a bunch of bumper stickers. And I'll tell you something else. Our world and the people in our community don't care what happens inside the crib they don't care if we sing a cool new song. They don't care if someone talks for 30 minutes. They don't care if the building's cool and trendy and all these other things. What the world is waiting for is what actually matters to God and what the real world is called to and the real church is called to in the name of Jesus for the love of God. He says, feed the hungry and house the homeless and clothe the naked and care for the sick and visit the prisoner and help the jobless and help the illiterate student learn to read and help dying people who have no hope, help the orphans and the widows, help lost people, lost searching people find Jesus. So we do not want to come to church. We want to be the church and be good news. What some of you might want to start thinking about is, what is my Isaiah 58 mission? Because without something, we just kind of turn into the Dead Sea. And here's the thing, it doesn't have to be grandiose. It doesn't have to be large. We get sucked into this idea of, I have to change the world. You know, we see stories and we see news articles and we see these, you know, exposés done and it talks about how someone's changing the world. Listen, you don't have to do it to impress anybody. It just has to be two things, real and done on a regular basis. <laughs> just let it be real and often. I'm going to get a little practical now. I want us to think about what is God calling you to do in his world. In other words, what might be your Isaiah 58 mission? And here's the question I want to give you. What breaks your heart in this world? Genuinely. What is it that when you hear it, and you hear it over and over, and you've heard it maybe the last year several times, and every time you heard it, something stirred inside of you, and it just broke your heart, more, than, more so than other things do. You know, we'll get these little heart checks once in a while. A few weeks ago, I came back home, and I was coming from the airport, so I took an Uber to get from the airport to home. 
And I got in the Uber and the young man that was driving didn't say one word for about 10 to 15 minutes. And then he began to speak and he said, sir, he goes, can I interrupt you? I said, well, it's just me, so there ain't much going on. <laughs> he said, my name is Samuel. He said, I am from Venezuela. And he actually spoke a pretty good English, but I could tell that he was still learning and it was a little broken. And this is what this young man said to me. He said, I want you to tell me how can I make it in this country? I said, Samuel, what, what do you mean? He goes, I want to make it in this country. And he went on for the next 10 minutes as we were driving. He told me his story of how he had left Venezuela. And I don't know if you've read the news or follow what's going on there, but it's a very, very difficult situation. There's a corrupt government. They're literally killing people, battling people in the streets. He told me that he had fire hoses turned on him and his family. He said it got so point, uh, to the point that it was so bad that most of the people have packed up and they're just now walking, walking to places that will let them come in over the border. He said, I walked, listen now, for three days. I ran out of food on the second day, and I ran out of water just as I was crossing over into the border. He said, I left my family because I knew there had to be something better. And he went eventually and made it to Miami. He got all the documentation that he needed. He was in the country legally. He went to Miami and he said he literally worked almost every single hour of his life for six months. I did whatever I had to do. I saved up enough so I could get a car, so I could Uber. I bartended at two or three different places. He went on and on and told the story and he said it was so expensive living in Miami. He said it was crushing me. So he found a distant uncle in Tampa. And he said, I came to a place called Town and County. <laughs> I said, you mean Town and Country? Town and Country. Town and Country. His uncle has let him live there for six months free of charge. And now he's trying to figure out. Now here's the kicker. This blew me away. I said, well, Samuel, I said, what did you do in Venezuela? He said, I worked for a place called Price Waterhouse Coopers. I said, you mean the big accounting firm? He goes, yes. He says, I was hired there uh, on an entry level as, as to help with accounting. He said, I'm very good with numbers. And something, something in that moment just, I can't quite explain it to you, but it just gripped my heart. It just, it just like grabbed me. And I said, you listen to me, Samuel. I said, as long as you're willing to work, as long as you're willing to ask for help, as long as you're willing to keep trying, I said, you're going to make it big in this country. I said, because the people I know these days, all they can do is complain. So I got online with him and I began to look up some different programs. He said, I have no money for college. He said, but I do have some money that I can go to technical school. And we looked up three or four technical schools over in St. Pete. One of them has an accounting program that he can be certified in about 13 months. 
And I wrote some of these things down and I got his number and I texted him back and forth a couple of times the next day. I said, I really want you to let me know how this is going. Now here's why I tell you that story for this reason. Samuel is not hoping that some Christian in America is going to listen to a cool talk or preach a really good sermon Sunday or sit in a really cool building. He is not hoping that some Christian is going to find a balanced life, which like seems to be the holy grail of every Christian in the world. He is hoping that somebody, somebody is going to have a broken heart for him. He's hoping somebody will give him some advice or do some research or open a door for him. He's hoping somebody is going to be Isaiah 58. See, this is the fellowship of the brokenheartedness, guys. This is what we're called to. Make no mistake about it. I want to run through just a few categories and then we'll wrap up this morning. I want to give you like a little booster, like a little heart check. I just want to run through a few things and when one of them hits you and that little tug happens, you need to say, you know what? I got to do something about this. For some of you in this room, it's education. Listen, I got some news for you, friends. The education system in parts of our country is less than ideal. And God bless teachers and educators and administrators. We have a lot of them at this church. And I hear some stories that just make my hair stand on end. Listen, some of you in this room, you love school. You love teachers. You love tests. You love grades. You love pop quizzes. Other students thought you were a little nerdy kid. You know why? Because you were a little nerdy kid. <laughs> but I want to tell you something. Jesus can use that nerdiness. And you can get involved with under-resourced schools. You could tutor a child. You could be part of sponsoring a classroom. My sister is a teacher in the public school system. And most of the kids, not some, most of the kids in her class come from under-resourced families. Most of them don't even speak good English. They're just scraping to get by. And some of the stories she tells just blow my mind. You could make a difference. Some of you in this room don't like school, but you have a heart for older folks, senior citizens. Now listen, we live in a culture, more so than maybe any culture that has tended to worship youth and discard folks who are older than any other culture in our history. God can use you to be a friend to people that most of society has forgotten about. Some of you in this room, you didn't like school and you're not that crazy about old people, even though you will be one one day. But what breaks your heart is poverty, scarcity. Did you know that in 1950, a man named Everett Swanson, he went to preach to soldiers who were serving in the Korean War. It was wintertime and when he was there, a young kid stole his coat. He chased the kid and he eventually opened the door that the kid had gone through and he found inside this room a room full of children who were freezing to death. This kid had stolen Everett's coat to keep those children alive. And Everett said in that moment, he said, I could not close my eyes to it. It broke his heart and that's how a ministry called Compassion International got started. Maybe it happens when you see someone on the streets. 
Maybe that breaks your heart. It wrecked, it wrecked a man named Millard Fuller and a ministry called Habitat for Humanity grew out of that broken heart. Maybe you just volunteer there. Maybe it's reconciliation of the races, racial reconciliation that is getting so much press these days. I'll tell you a brief story. I had the opportunity to attend the Penn State-Ohio State football game this past year. I don't know if you've ever been to a college game, but particularly this college game, it was insane. They crammed 111,000 people into a stadium that comfortably seats about 70,000. But I'll tell you what struck me about it. It was before the game. We were at a tailgate party with one of the families of one of the young men who played for Penn State. They're an African-American family. And the dad told me at one point the story of how his son actually came to play for Penn State. During his sophomore year of high school, he suffered a serious knee injury. It took him a full year to recover. And because he was a very highly recruited high school player, his parents wanted to give him the best opportunity to succeed going into his senior year. So they took a gamble and they decided to send him to one of the premier sports academies in all the United States. In fact, it's not very far from Lakeland. But it comes with a hefty, hefty price tag. And his dad went down and toured the campus and investigated the program. And one of the administrators began to question him about the cost of the academy. And he kept emphasizing about how much it would be and how much the tuition was and how much this was and how much the families had to consider. And he said a lot of families have to take out a loan just to pay the tuition. And it was brought up like several, several times and the dad finally got tired of hearing it. He says, you know, we have the money to send our son wherever he needs to go. If you'll worry about the education, he said, I'll worry about the compensation. What that academy did not know was that that dad had a very good friend who was touring that campus at the same time. He was going to play, his son was going to play for a different college. But he knew him very well. And he asked him later on, he said, tell me something. He said, when you toured the college, he said, did they keep bringing up how much the cost of the tuition was? And this dad, who happens to be a white family, said, I don't know what you're talking about. They never mentioned it one time. Now, see, we don't think much about that in our society. We don't think much about that episode. But what's underneath that, friends, whether we like it or not, is a, just a subtle form of discrimination and racism. Because what they were really worried about was they were worried about him being able to pay the bill if he sent his son there. Now, see, that goes on over and over in our society. And we, especially those of us who are white, don't think much about it. But believe me, it happens. Maybe that's what you're being called to. Or maybe you have for a heart for someone in prison. Did you know that prisons can be hell holes? And when a little community of faith gets in there and gets started, it kind of puts light in darkness. A couple times a year I'll get letters sometimes from inmates and some people who I've known or been connected to throughout my life. I can always tell because there's letters and numbers on the outside of the envelope. They have long addresses on them. When someone gets a hold of someone, especially in prison, it can change a life. Here's the bottom line, friends. 
The best way to love God, the best way to love God is to love your neighbor. Do not wait for the perfect strategy, the perfect opportunity. Don't wait until you have it figured out. Just take one step, just one step. Just volunteer, just pray, just read something. Just go on a trip, just take a risk, just do something. Just don't die. We'll close with this. There's a guy named Toby. When Toby was just a high school student, he went on a mission trip to Ethiopia. And while he was in Ethiopia, now listen now, a 10-year-old Ethiopian kid came up to him and he asked Toby for his t-shirt. It was a blazing hot day and Toby was a very fair-skinned kid. He didn't have another shirt with him, so he just kind of blew the kid off, knew he would probably get burnt to a crisp. But that night, he couldn't sleep. He said, I just kept thinking about this kid. So he started praying about it, and over time, he got this idea. In Ethiopia, where there had been so much suffering, a kid would be thrilled just to get a t-shirt. Now, we live in America, Toby thought. How many of you in this room have extra t-shirts right now? Yeah. Toby thought, maybe I could just collect a few t-shirts here in America and send them to Africa. So he started going door to door. He said, do you have any extra t-shirts around? And he called it the Give the Shirt Off Your Back campaign. Word started spreading and TV stations started calling about this kid collecting t-shirts. And suddenly 7-Eleven stores started putting out bins so people could bring their t-shirts. Toby ended up at the end of the drive with 18,000 t-shirts. After he sorted through the ones with the holes and the stains, the kind that your wife gets rid of, you know, when you're not looking, the one that you've loved your entire life, but now it's gone because of her petty desire to be needy and neatness, you know. Not my wife, not my wife, okay. I'm sure somebody else's. Toby still had 10,000 t-shirts left. But now the problem was, how in the world do I get them from here to Africa? The place that he had stored them in for a temporary time said, you got to get them out. And then he got a call from CNN. They said, is this Toby the t-shirt kid? We've been told there's a relief organization trying to get in touch with you. They have access to an Air Force jet. They can take these shirts to Africa. Now, because it was an Air Force jet, they were allowed to bypass customs. And they landed in an unexpected country that they really didn't plan to land in. And because they were, again, an Air Force jet, it bypassed customs. And they got all the t-shirts there for free. Did you guess what country it was? Ethiopia. The same place where Toby had his little heart broken. None of that, and here's the point, would have happened if he hadn't taken at least an action step. You know what his step was? His first step was to take a trip. And then when, the second step was, you got to do something, so I'll just start asking people for shirts. So here's the deal as we close and we get ready for communion. When we leave for lunch today, somebody is going to probably ask you, how was church today? Let me give you the answer. The answer is, we don't know yet because it's not what happened inside the building today. Jesus is wanting us to tear down walls. 
The most beautiful church in the world is the one that is actually in the world. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.